So we'll continue our series on uh, discipleship. And as we consider uh, how to disciple another so that we grow together more into the image of Christ, I want to consider the issue of young children in public corporate worship. Uh, the, the, The children being part of the morning worship service, the afternoon worship service together with the rest of the church. That's the goal for us to finally, to eventually arrive at tonight, this morning. There's some things I want to cover before we get there. Remember, we're talking about discipleship in general. And we've talked about several different areas of discipleship, what discipleship is, that God calls us to be disciples who makes disciples, that being a Christian and being a disciple are synonymous, so you don't become one and then the other. And then we've been looking at the primary area of discipleship, which is not the church, but the family. So that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Two weeks ago, though, we, we uh, talked about some of the how-tos of uh, child-rearing, and uh, we were able to talk about a lot of it, but there's one area that we haven't finished yet. So uh, one of the main things we emphasized in our last lesson two weeks ago was that the father is the one primarily responsible in raising the children. The father is, a primarily, is primarily responsible for raising the children. That's on the shoulders of, your, of you, man. You can't just say, oh, no, I just gave it to the wife. Now she's the solely responsible for that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, the question remains, what if... So this is what we're going to be talking about eventually. How, uh, what if there is no father present? What, what, what does the Bible teach us about that? What if there is no Christian father or no father at all? There are just briefly two passages that uh, I think would be helpful for us. One is James 1, 27, where James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspoiled from the world. So if there is no Christian father or no father at all, the church, the men in the church are supposed to be sure that that child has the same sort of, of opportunities, the same sort of uh, instruction, the same sort of uh, experience as other children who do have a father, a Christian father in the home. James says that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is visit the orphans in their trouble. Well, not having a father is a trouble. Therefore, that's what pure and undefiled religion does. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, reading the Bible is great and we should do it. But notice that it doesn't list, read 10, cha- ten chapters a day and uh, that's what pure and undefiled religion is. It does put very practical uh, uh, application to what that pure and undefiled religion is. And then Titus chapter 2, where Paul instructs Titus the pastor to instruct his church that there should be cross-generational ministry. So if there's no father, Christian father present, again, look how the older men are supposed to step in in training the younger men. If there's no younger men to train, well, then you step in and help out that uh, single mom or the mom without, uh, the child without a Christian father. So if there's no Christian father or father at all, the church needs to be involved more directly. The church is always involved, but more directly if there's no, no Christian father or no father at all, the responsibility falls on us uh, uh, as well to help that mother in raising those children. Any questions on that? 
All right, so the Christian parent's objective in training his or her child is God-centered. Everything in life is pointing to God. God is at the center of the life. See all the arrows there pointing to God. Everything needs to be about that. And then in doing that, we trust our children to carry godly values into future generations. So we are raising the next generation, but also thinking about the next generation and the next generation as we train them to live God, God-centered lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses, so God speaking through Moses says this, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. See, God saying, I'm giving you this word. Horeb is another word for Sinai. I'm giving you this word. I'm making this covenant with you so that you may live that out. And then that last clause is super important as well. And that they may teach their children to do the same. So that here in the Old Testament, the idea of teaching is not just this mental or, or cognitive uh, knowledge, but the idea of living out the things you've learned. So God's given us this covenant that we might live it out and then also teach our children to live it out. Remember what the Great Commission is? That's really where the mission of the church is found. It is to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, teaching them to do what? To observe. Not to just to believe, not just to know. But to observe, to do all that Christ has commanded His church, and that's true also in parenting. One of the main goals of the Christian parent in training his or her children is for them to live a life of godliness and wisdom. Our main goal in raising our children is not that they be well-educated, it's not that they get a good job, it's not that they be successful in life, it's that they be godly. That has to be the main... If your priority as a parent is something else, you're misguided and idolatrous in your priority. Because then your God is something else other than the God of the Bible. Uh, Paul says that in Ephesians 6, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's the goal, the training and admonition of the Lord. And then Proverbs 22 is not a promise, it's a truism. And we can take as a warning, train up your children, train up a child in the way he should go, and, he, and when he's old, he's not depart from it. Uh, to, to use a saying that's being said with church, whatever you win your children with, that's what you'll win them for. Generally speaking, what you train them, that's what they're going to be when they grow up. And... So if your goal is godly children, then that has to be your value in your own life. Now, it's generally speaking, you're not going to train your children to be something that you are not. Years ago, I came across this quote from uh, William Hendrickson. He says this, that the very heart of Christian nurture is this, to bring the heart of the child to the heart of his Savior. And that's what parents are doing whatever else parents are doing. This is the focus of discipling our children. Any questions? All right. So by now, you might be saying, "Oh, one more thing." 
the, the last thing I want to say in, in, in the how-tos of raising a child is this. In addition to disciplining and training your children, enjoy your children. Enjoy them. Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5 say, Behold, children are a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his cover full of them. They shall be, not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Uh, happy is the man. So there's this idea of enjoying your children as well. Uh, they are heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. Uh, so it's for us to enjoy them. In Psalm 128, your, sh- your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. And you might say, but pastor, you don't know my children. I can't enjoy them. Well, then, you know, do your job as a parent and discipline them and teach them and nurture them, admonish them so that they can be a blessing from the Lord. Is They're not ready-made blessings. It's not like add water and they become a blessing. It's not, it's, no, they're not uh, freeze-dried food or uh, those little things that uh, come and put in water and reveal a little dragon or a little animal or whatever. No, you have to actually work so that they might be a blessing to you. So parents, it is your duty before God to do whatever you can to influence your children in the gospel. Whatever else you do in life, this is what matters. You don't do it, it doesn't matter what else you do. But Lord, did we cast demons in your name? Lord, did we do all these miracles? Yet the gospel is not centered at your life, at your house. And your children haven't come to know the Lord through you. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. And He brings other people into our lives. And we get to know Him. But how about you as a father, as a, as a mother, especially as a father? Where's the gospel in your life? And are you living it before your children? By now, you might be saying, I have failed miserably. Now, if you are there, rejoice. Because then you're ready to repent. If you recognize that you failed in some areas, that's a great blessing and mercy from the Lord because then you're ready to repent. That's the best place to be in order to receive the grace of God. Parenting, like everything else in life, can only be done by losing your life in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus says that in our weakness, His grace is made strong. So if you know you have failed miserably, repent, open your eyes to the grace of God, and then go ahead and nurture and admonish your children the best you can in whatever stage of life your children are. It can never say, oh, man, I blew it, uh, now we're done. No, whatever stage you are, be, f- be faithful to the Lord now. Any questions before we continue? Jerry? In the previous verse, you mentioned your children will be like olive plants. Is there some significance to olive plants? That... So it says they'll be like little olive plants. The promise in some way is a promise. As, as, you, as, you, are, as you are a go- well, not promise, but the statement there is, as you are a godly person, olive tree is a sign of blessing. Olive oil comes out of it. Life 
It sustained uh, throughout the prophets the, a, a picture of God's blessings to have olive trees around your house and be able to benefit from, from them. And the idea is that the children are little shoots of the tree. As the parents are olive trees themselves, blessings, uh, in, you know, in field of godliness, the children will be those olive shoots that grow up. Now, if you go to a place where they have a fruit tree, like uh, in Brazil, I grew up with mango trees and jackfruit trees. And there was these huge, big trees. And then you could see little shoots that would fall from the, the, the seeds that fell down. And trees just like them would start growing under them. And that's the, the idea. Does it make sense? All right. Any other questions? All right, so that brings us to the place of children in the public corporate worship of the Lord on the Lord's Day. So vocabulary, the Lord's Day is Sunday. And it's the Lord's Day, not our day. It is the Christian Sabbath is given to us for our good and for the glory of God, and that's why we are to use it. And one of the main things that the Lord wants us to do in His day is to get together and worship Him as the Church of Jesus Christ. So one is important, an important element of discipleship is the participation of children in the corporate public worship of the Lord. <clears throat> in our church, when I say that, I'm referring to the morning service and the afternoon service, not the morning service or the afternoon service. I'm referring to the morning service and the afternoon service, the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour, or the Lord's hour and lunch, the Lord's day that is given for us to worship Him. We currently have 56 children under the age of 12. I do not believe that 56 is lesser than 12. So the the mathematicians, (laughs) please, Amy, don't correct me on this one. (laughs) I'm just saying that we have 56 children under the age of 12. That's what this is supposed to uh, represent. Uh, And these are the ones that regularly attend our church. Of these 56 kids, uh, Andrew's taking pictures to show, look, our pastor doesn't know math. (laughs) Of these 56 children, 19 are under 5. That includes Julius right here in the front row. Um, In June, our average attendance was 138. So just to give a context of where we are. So when you do the math, you see that 40.6% of our regular attendees on the Lord's Day are under the age of 12. Yep. And 14% is under the age of 5. So we have the problem, as some might think, of having to figure out what to do with the young children doing worship services. And my notes have problem in quotation marks. Because... Truthfully, that's not a problem. And I tell you that this is one problem that I hope never goes away. Because when we hear Julius talking, doing services, do you know what we're hearing? We hear the gospel going forth tomorrow, the next generation. We hear the future in those little voices there. So, the Lord's blessed us with a great number of children's children for our size and we're thankful for that but we need to know how to disciple them and minister to them through the corporate and public worship of the lord 
There are, however, some questions that we need to answer regarding young children in the worship services that would be helpful for us to understand why we do that if we answer these questions. So, why do we want to include children in the public worship of the church? Why do we encourage parents to keep their young children in the sanctuary? Wouldn't our worship service be more reverent and peaceful if the young kids were all somewhere else? Now, you've thought that, right? (laughs) I've thought that at times. Um, After all, they don't really benefit from the worship service, right? So won't the noise and commotion turn visitors away? These are actually questions that were asked me by people in our congregation, so these are not hypothetical questions. How will our church grow if visitors don't stay? Hmm. (laughs) What do you think, Julius? How will our church grow? (laughs) By Dutch evangelism. If you know what that is, I'll explain to you later. We are Presbyterians, and we want things to be done decently and in order. And, you know, uh, I love the Babylon Bee. That's where I get all my news. Um, <laughs> they tend to be closer to reality than the actual news. I don't know if you know what the Babylon Bee is, but it's a satire site. And uh, it uh, once had a satire about the Presbyterians that, that uh, the, 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 motions, the motion lights all went off during the Presbyterian worship service. <laughs> and, no, because, yes, thank you, Julius. Uh, <laughs> The idea that we like things distantly and ordered and quiet and nobody moves, so wouldn't the children keep us from uh, doing that? We're going to try to answer these questions, and I wanted to make sure that, that you understand that this lesson is not for only parents of young children. It's for the Church of Jesus Christ. It's for all of us. We all have a part to play in each other's lives, including in the lives of our covenant children. They are members of this church. Our covenant baptism ceremonies and with the following statement, and I noticed that there's a, a, there's a um, typo there, but this is how the ceremony ends. It's by my saying, or the officiating pastor saying, this child thus acknowledged to be part of the covenant promises is commended to you, the members of this church, for your love and care as God is your judge. That's the, some of the, the covenantal promises that we make to one another as we baptize one of our children. So the first thing we need to establish is that the Bible teaches that young children should be present in a worship service. Because if if the Bible says, no, they shouldn't be present, and then everything else, there's no point in talking about anything else. But before I go there, any questions so far? All right. The visible church, that is the church of Christ on the earth, was established with the promise and a sacrament that included children. Some of you that may have grown in more Baptistic circles uh, have this misguided idea that the visible church started on the day of Pentecost. You're only about 3,000 years late on that start. The church of Jesus Christ, the church of God, the visible church of God, the representation, representation of God on earth started with a promise made, a covenant made with Abraham that included children and included a sacrament. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 9 through 12, it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations 
for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Everlasting. How long should an everlasting covenant last? We'd think forever, right? Since God is the one speaking, we think maybe he's truthful in what he's saying. And when he promises this will be an everlasting covenant, maybe we should, as his people, take it as an everlasting covenant. And what's the promise? What's the main promise? To be a God to you and to your descendants. Now, the word descendants kind of throws off because we think of descendants as somebody down the road, way far in the future. But guess what? Julius is Jacob's descendant. Malachi is Adam's descendant. So it doesn't have to be 10, 20 generations down to make you a descendant. And God said to Abraham, if, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. So you have a covenant made with God, is an everlasting, by God with Abraham, is an everlasting covenant. He's gathering his visible church. And he says, for this generation, since this is the first covenant of generation, all male is going to be circumcised regardless of age. And, but as the generations come, then the children, the male child, will be circumcised on the eighth day to be part of that covenant as well. So we have children part of the visible church of Jesus Christ by way of covenant, by way of representation through the male. But, you say, but that's not enough. It just tells us that they are part of the visible church of God, of God but doesn't tell us that he should be, they should be present when the church gathered, when the people of God gathered to worship Him. Well, in the Old Covenant, children of all ages were commanded to be in the worship services. Now, I can command Red to do whatever I want to command him to do, but doesn't mean that he's going to do it. That he has even the power to do it. I said, Red, I want you to go to church. And he's just going to look at me with a cute face. and He can't really do that. And yet, as we're going to see, the Bible commands the children to be in worship services. Hmm. Who is that command really ultimately for? The parents. So, in Deuteronomy 29, for example, they're getting ready to come into the promised land, and Moses is speaking to them. And Moses tells them, All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes, and your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. And you say, well, but that's just the nation of Israel. This is not a worship service. Well, let's keep on reading. That you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into His oath which the Lord your God makes you makes with you today. It is an oath-taking worship service. In the scriptures, covenant-making and oath-taking are worship services, are religious observ- observances. And the children, the little ones, are commanded to be present in that service. See the same thing 
in Deuteronomy 31, where there it says, And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years. So you might say, You know what? Tito, the last passage is not that convincing. It could be just a civil occasion. Well, that's, this is just two chapters after. See, I know how to do math. Chapter 31 is two chapters after chapter 29. And in chapter 31, it says this, And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you agree that the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the worship feasts of Israel? I hope we can agree with that. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. The entire book of Deuteronomy read... In one shot. Gather the people together, men and women, and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So you can see that was in the Word of God, the Old Covenant church was expected to have their children present in the worship of God. Any questions? Two more passages. Joshua 8.35 There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded to which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. You know what the word assembly is there? If the Old Testament written in Greek, this, this would be likely in English the word church. Because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word assembly is consistently translated with the word that in the New Testament we use for church. This is the word. So, in the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers were living among them. So Joshua read the word of God to whom? everyone that was part of the people of God, the covenant people of God. Uh, Nehemiah 12.43 Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. This is the description of the end of a worship service in which they worship God for two quarters of the day. So a half day worship service in which the children were included there. Any questions so far? So establishing that God has always had children or expected children to be present in the worship service, whatever that service is, of the, pub, the public and corporate worship service of the church. But there's more. <clears throat> if you read the prophet Joel, now Joel is a minor prophet, one of those that often our pages in our Bibles are still stuck because we don't necessarily read them uh, very often. But the prophet Joel describes the coming of the Messiah for his bride. So the coming of Christ for his bride, the church, as a worship service in which the youngest children should be present. So this is an eschatological. It's talking about the last times that started with the resurrection of Christ will be consummated at the return of Christ. And Joel is talking about the, that period. And he talks about as a wedding worship service in which children are to be present. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. So that's what's happened, a sacred assembly. 
a church service. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. And if that wasn't enough, look what he says. And nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from the dressing room. And you know the New Testament grabs onto this language, specifically Paul, of wedding, and talks about the leadership of, of Christ and his church. Remember that these solemn, all these solemn gatherings of the Old Covenant find their climax on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday, when we meet to worship. These are pointing to this weekly reminder of Christ's resurrection when we gather together on the first day of the week to worship Him. And besides uh, the biblical examples and precepts, the theological nature of the church shows that we should gather as a whole, every part present. How absurd would you think, maybe you wouldn't think, but how absurd do you think that if we said that all 75-year-olds and older must go play in the annex building for a worship service? (laughs) Keith says, yes, I like that. So, okay. (laughs) So... No, we can't. They're part of the church. They shouldn't be kept from the worship of God, you'd say. Well, why do we do that on the other end of the membership scale as well? Our former government, which part of our constitution says this, the Catholic visible, this is small, small C Catholic, so the universal visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children. That's what the visible church is. Our confession, which is also part of our constitution, says, that's uh, so tiny, but 25.2, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion together with their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So that's the, that's the church. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the New Testament often uses the analogy of a family for the church. And nowhere in the Bible a family excludes children. It doesn't mean that every family has to have a child, but the prototype, the, 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 the picture of a nuclear family is a family with children. And God, purposefully, the Holy Spirit, inspired the author of the New Testament to say, look, the the church is like a family. Lastly, for this part, we're not getting off early today, Jesus' interaction with children during his earthly ministry shows his desire for them to come to him in worship. If you look at the gospel narratives, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look at the gospel narratives, the entire life of Jesus is bracketed by children worshiping Him. You ever notice that? Who was the first person to worship Jesus? John the Baptist, where? Exactly. In the womb of Elizabeth. Who were worshiping Jesus on that Sunday night or Sunday day when He entered Jerusalem? The Pharisees were really mad at them and told Jesus, tell them to shut up. If you got the pattern yet, the, the answer is children. 
Yes. And Jesus says, you know, you've been, he's prophesied out of the mouth of babes will come praises to the Lord. So you see that in Luke 1, where John the Baptist leaped for joy in the womb of Mary for, for meeting his Lord. We see that in um, the Synoptic Gospels, but here's Matthew 21, where the children are the ones that uh, uh, worship the Lord. Any, any questions before we continue? All right, we'd um, love for you to grab your Bible for a second and turn to Mark chapter 10. Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 13 through 16 is a microcosm of Jesus' attitude toward children of believing parents. So I'm going to read it, and as I read it, I want you to be asking yourself, where are the believing parents? How come teacher is saying that these are believing parents, okay? So as I read it, Try to answer that, mind, that question in your mind. Mark 10, 13. Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. I surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the, king, the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. Do you see how they are covenant children? Do you see how they are children of believing parents? I hope not because it's not in the text. It's not in this, but it's in the context. In, chapter, in verse 1 of the same chapter... We see that they were in Judea. That's where the Jews lived. That's where the covenant people of God lived. The gospel writers always tell us when Jesus is talking to Gentiles. Because it's important for how we interpret that. Here, he's in the midst of God's covenant people. He's in the midst of the people who are church members, as it were, to use today's uh, parlance. And we see that these parents then are members of the first century church. The desire of the parents to bring them to Jesus also showed that. How different the attitude of these parents. They want to bring their children to hear Jesus and to be blessed by them. And these are little children in the Gospel of Luke, which talks about the very same incident in chapter 18, verse 15, says these were infants. That's the word that he uses there. That these parents are bringing infants to come to hear and to be blessed by Jesus and it says here that Jesus takes them into the, his arms. So at least size-wise, they have to be small enough for Jesus to take them into his arms. And all three synoptics—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—include this particular event. And notice that the disciples want to protect Jesus by keeping the children away from him. In verse thirteen, the disciples said, "No, no, 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 no. He doesn't have time for little children. This is just going to get in his way." Stay away from, from Jesus. Don't come and bother him. And this is one of the few times in the Bible, there's not very many of them, that says that Jesus was angry. In verse 14, Jesus was angry with the disciples for not allowing the parents to bring their children to him. Mark says he was indignant. He was grieved that his own disciples were keeping the children from coming to him. 
And then he commanded the children to come to him. Let the little children come to him. It's, 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 a, it's a way of speaking that doesn't exist in, in English. It's a third person imperative. You're command, commanding someone who's not present to do something. And that should be through the means of somebody else. Here, the parents and the disciples. And he says that because the, in verse 14, these children of believing parents were part of the kingdom of God. In verse 4, in verse 14, it's the third part of the verse, we learn that, that these children were to be brought to Jesus because they were part of the visible kingdom of God. And in verse 15, if you read it, can't you just see the tenderness with, with which Jesus blessed these children? Because they're part of his visible kingdom. Jesus wants children, very young children, to come to him in worship. And the place he is found is in the congregation of the brethren. Jesus is everywhere, right? Who made you? What else did God make? All right. And then if we were to ask, where is God? You say, everywhere. So Jesus is everywhere, but he meets specially with his people in the congregation of the brethren. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. He says, Jesus is speaking, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. It's interesting that uh, this passage, it was a few places in the whole New Testament that the translators decided to use assembly instead of church. Because it's a word for church. I'll, miss you in the, I'll meet you in the midst of the church. The gathered church. So, if that's what Jesus wants, why is it so difficult? <laughs> why is it so hard to have kids? Any ideas to have kids in the, the worship service? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Rick? The sinful. The sinful, alright. What else? Darren? It takes work. It takes work. <laughs> yes, what else? Maybe I'm the only one that thought it was hard. Maybe everybody else's kids here think it's just a breeze to have kids in the, in the worship service and that doesn't take any, any, any work. Scott? Uh, they can be a distraction um, either because they're just really cute or because they're screaming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the cute part. What's that? I like the cute part. Yeah. Yeah. So, this, uh, uh, the kids... Are sinners, right? They are a bundle of little sin, a bundle of sin. Uh, James, uh, David says in Psalm fifty-one, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me." Like from from conception, uh, we are sinners. But that's not only that. No, you can't just blame the kids. They are sinners, and guess who else? We are sinners, as well. We don't want to deal with them. We don't believe, thirdly, we don't believe in what the Bible says concerning worship services, concerning preaching, and concerning regeneration. We lack faith. We don't believe in what the Bible says concerning worship services. How many of you really think that being here at this moment is the best thing you could be doing with your life? Uh, you don't have to answer, you can just, in your head. Or with a slight raise of your left brow. <laughs> That's what the Bible teaches. 
How many of you think that the best thing you could be doing for your life is to be here at 1.30 for the worship service? I don't want to see raised hands. I know that most of you don't think that's the case. Because it's simple. You're not here. So that, that, now the proof is in the absent pudding. How many of you came today with the expectation of tasting a little bit of heaven in worship? Do you really think that this is of vital importance to your survival as a child of God? Or would you much rather be having a root canal? Truthfully, appearances are deceitful. But from up here in the morning service, sometimes it looks like some of you would prefer being in the dentist getting the root canal than being here singing praises to the God Almighty who saved you through Jesus Christ. So we lack faith in what the Bible says concerning worship of God because we don't believe that, the, that worshiping the Lord as a body is of supreme importance and necessity. We don't think that it is important that young children be present in worship services. So we, we don't really believe in what the Bible says concerning the importance of corporate public worship. We don't believe in what the Bible says concerning preaching and regeneration. And I'll explain in a minute uh, at this part of it. I think the number one argument that I've heard against children being in the worship service is that they can't understand anything. So why, why do that? What would they gain from that? They can't understand anything. Can you? If you say yes, then you don't understand regeneration. Regeneration has nothing to do with your mental capacity. It has nothing to do with your understanding. Regeneration happens before you can understand anything. The Bible teaches that through the preaching of the word, God gives you a new heart, that you are born again, and because of that, you're able to understand. But it has nothing to do with your understanding, and everything to do with the work of the Spirit of God, through His word, to change your heart. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. doesn't matter if he has a PhD or post-doctorate or whatever degree he has. If, if he's not been born again, he will not understand the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. Paul says that you, he made alive, were dead in trespasses and sins. Have you ever tried to get people in the cemetery to believe in Jesus Christ? Guess what? That's the analogy used in the scriptures to preaching. Preaching to corpuses. How much can corpuses understand? Nothing. We'll save it for next time, but we're going to, we will look at Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. That's the passage in which Ezekiel, God says, Ezekiel, go preach to this valley and Ezekiel looks out and there's all these bones and he says they were very dry bones but they were beyond dead and God asks Ezekiel do you think that these, people, these bones can come to life and by that point Ezekiel had uh, messed up enough times in answering God he said oh Lord you know I mean, whatever you say uh, you know what might happen and then he says preach prophesy another way of saying preach and through the message, God says, the Spirit is going to bring life to this bones. And what did Ezekiel do? He preached. What happened? The bones came to life, and this great army of the Lord came to existence. Oh, kids can't understand, neither can you when you're in a state of unbelief. And yet, it was that preached word that the Lord used 
to change your heart so that you could understand what was being proclaimed. So somehow the heart of children are so hard that God can't change that heart through the preaching of His Word? I hope we don't, we don't believe that. So we often don't believe in what we say we believe concerning preaching and regeneration. That's why we say, oh, let's not have children in worship service because they can't understand anything. And then we move them from the very means that God appointed for their salvation, for their regeneration, from their new birth. We'll continue that next time. We ran out of time. Um, Lord willing, next week, we're going to take a look at the fact that sometimes this is so hard because we don't take time to train our children. Uh, no, because uh, training children to worship doesn't start Sunday. It starts Monday, as it were, you know, throughout the week and so on. And uh, we'll go from there. All right. Any last-minute question? Just one question or two before we close. All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Uh, these are, at times, hard words, but uh, trust they were your words based on your, uh, the scriptures. We pray, Father, that you help us to grow in our understanding of them, that we might glorify you. Bless our time of worship this morning. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.